1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special episode of Grey History. I'm your host, Will Clark, and this is the first ever joint episode with another podcast. In today's joint episode, I team up with Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast for a wide ranging discussion on everything to do with both the Catholic Church and the Papacy before, during, and after the French Revolution. Now, this is quite a lengthy episode, it's about an hour and a half, and so I've split this episode into three distinct parts. If you would like to listen to this episode in smaller bite-sized chunks, the exact timing of these parts can be found in the show notes, or just listen out for the mini Grey History ad breaks. Those three parts are roughly as follows. Part one is more me interviewing Steve about the history of both the church and the papacy not only in France, but Europe more broadly. This is a broad conversation covering both medieval and early modern history. In part two, we flip the script. It's more Steve interviewing me, discussing a wide range of topics regarding the role of the church, the pope, and regular priests in the French Revolution. This includes the initial, more cooperative relationship between some revolutionaries and clerics, all the way through to how the Catholic Church and the Revolution become the very definition of mortal enemies. We touch on everything from the nationalisation of church property, to what sorts of priests were more or less likely to swear loyalty to the new constitution. We also discuss the tensions that existed within the church during the revolutionary era, as well as the de-Christianisation campaigns which occurred during the terror. In part three, we change the approach once again. It's more of a two-way discussion in which Steve and I discuss how the revolution impacted the papacy and the Catholic Church in the decades following the revolution, and how these events helped to craft the modern Catholic Church and papacy that you and I know today. So please enjoy this fantastic joint episode between the History of the Papacy podcast and Grey History. You can find The History of the Papacy on all good podcast apps, and there's tons of material for you to sink your teeth into. As a reminder, I'm currently working on grey history full-time, and this experiment is only possible thanks to the Patreon supporters of the show. I've left my job, I've moved homes, I'm doing everything I can to go that little bit further, to bring grey history to you that little bit longer but it won't be possible forever. It's just not sustainable. If you're enjoying grey history, if you agree that history needs to be told in a way that embraces ambiguity and nuance, then I need your help to keep grey history running. Help be the change you want to see and support the podcast today. welcome to gray history history of the papacy joint episode
0: so today we're talking about the french revolution and Kind of setting a little bit of the stage of what was going on with the papacy and the Catholic Church. I'm really happy and excited to talk with Will of Great History. I'm loving the great history. Uh, I'm burning through episodes trying to get caught up.
1: Well, thank you for that, Steve. It's uh, it's there's a little bit of a library to get there, and and each episode gets a little longer, I think, as time goes on. So <laughs> there's a little, just a little bit more to do as you uh, as you catch it up. I'm also enjoying. I'm jumping in and out of various episodes of the history of the papacy podcast as well, and it's um, I've been listening to uh, the Pontifex pod as well. So I feel like I'm I'm knee deep in uh pontifical history at the moment, which
0: I'm loving, and it's exciting because. Papal history and Catholic Church history is so intertwined with French history and especially the French Revolution, that it'll be really great for both of our audiences to get on the same page with uh, what's going on with those two really important aspects of French history and European history.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's one of those things that... You cannot talk about the French Revolution without talking about the history of the Catholic Church and the role that the Catholic Church and the papacy plays in how the revolution evolves. It's just so critical. And then likewise, you can't talk about, I mean, not only the history of the modern world, but in particular, you can't talk about modern church history And the position of the pope now without looking at just how impactful the revolution was in terms of you know really how we think of the pope today as opposed to maybe the powers and the position of the pope in european society you know pre-revolutionary times
0: yeah absolutely the catholic church in france goes back a long long way and really it starts all the way back before there even was a france with the Franks, and there's Clovis, and you can go back and listen to episodes to get more details. But there's a a lot of big names in pre France, Franks, and then going into when there is more of a proper France. But then uh, some of the big names are Martin of tours, St. John Cassian, who's really the father of Western monasticism, he founded his monastery in southern modern day France. Catholic practice in France really took on its own flair or flavor, if you will. It had its own tweaks to the mass, to the liturgy. It had its own version of uh, of their chant, etc. And that really wasn't unusual for the time. Visigothic Spain had its own Anglo-Saxon England, Ireland, different parts of Italy, and the German states all took their own individual takes on certain aspects of the liturgy and all aspects of Christianity. Uh, And diversity of practice was not unusual. It's really a modern day, modern being maybe the last 200 years, that there was really an idea that there should be one practice that was really based on the roman practice i mean you even go back to augustine in the 400s and he asks ambrose of milan oh they're not doing things right in uh, th- this place i think he was in milan and or no he was in rome and uh, augustine was accustomed to the practices of milan and ambrose just tells him to like take a break that's where you get do as the romans um uh, but a big, big theme in papal history from this point all the way back in the antiquity forward is that the popes are fighting to secure control over the papal states, uh, which we'll get into in a minute, and exercise authority over Christendom, mostly the western part of Europe at this point, but also dipping their toe into the east in religious affairs. And those are the two really big themes that are that set the stage for all of the Middle Ages and really even all the way to the modern age.
1: Yeah, well, if you think about, you know, the the Pope pretty much, um, as a Prince of Rome as well, has long been in contest with uh, the various powers and rulers and then eventually, as we get to more state-like entities, as we move into the uh, the Middle Ages, um, you know, he's, he's just kind of continuously jostling for power, not only from a religious authority, Perspective, but also a secular authority perspective, and I think a lot of my listeners might be surprised at just um, how much temporal power uh, the the popes had, and also how involved in uh, government affairs the church was. In terms of you know, the, if you look at some how powerful some would say the bishops were in the Holy Roman Empire, um, what you know, call it a thousand years ago, I think it would astonish a lot of people nowadays that weren't quite familiar with the power of the church then. Uh, and it might be worth maybe you jumping into some of the uh, roles, the, the kind of responsibilities that nowadays we would consider to be part of a secular government that the church was actually responsible for in this time. you know, the various various pies that the Pope and his um you know his cardinals and bishops had their fingers in, so to speak.
0: Yeah, if you really, if you go back to antiquity, when the Roman Empire fell in the West, the church was really the only organization that was standing that could take care of the day-to-day things that the Roman Empire took care of. Security to some degree in a lot of places, the bishop was the only person around who could get the militia together on the walls. Uh it's, you know, all, all sorts of simple things like taking alms to the poor. The the Catholic Church was almost the default fallback to the, you know, what I, I say, taking out the garbage and just the really the general things that make a society run. There was these uh, Germanic kings. They didn't have a, a lot of interest, or even the organizational skill, to take ho- to take over these functions that the Roman Empire had left behind. And the church was the uh, was the last man standing.
1: Well, and that you know that makes sense. I mean, if you think about the, the position that they had from a spiritual and moral authority, it would have been easier for them to to kind of take up that uh that mantle so to speak that was left behind by some of the the institutions of the Roman Empire
0: now the catholic church in the middle ages it, it takes a big turn in the 750s uh, prior to that period about for about 200 250 years the byzantine or the eastern roman empire had really dominated the papacy the uh the Byzantines controlled most of the Italian peninsula, and that started to shrink. But Rome was firmly under Byzantine control for a long time, up until the 700s. The popes of Rome were basically vassals of the Byzantine emperor or one of his designees. They couldn't be officially consecrated until they got the stamp of approval of the Byzantine emperor. All that really, I mean, evolutionarily it was changing because the Byzantines were getting beaten back in Italy and their powers were shrinking into certain sections of the northern part of the peninsula and the southern part of the peninsula. After 752, Pope Zachary gave the nod to Pepin the Frank to take power officially in the Frankish court. Uh, the Pepin was kind of the, the de facto leader of France over the Merovingians, but he wanted uh, de jour power, and the Pope helped with that. And in appreciation, Pepin donated a certain section of land in that he had conquered in the Italian peninsula, what what would eventually become the Papal States, was given to the Pope as their own territory. So the Pope was the religious power there, but the Pope was also the secular leader of that little duchy or proto-state, whatever you want to call it. The other thing that starts to develop is who was going to appoint bishops. And that was a major, major issue because like you were saying, well, bishops had a vast amount of power. And in a lot of places, a town, the bishop might actually be the secular leader as well as the religious leader. And they were just in control of vast amounts of wealth and land. Also, the the up and coming monasteries, which the monastery was basically the economic engine of a lot of these areas. And who would be the one to appoint them? Obviously, both the Pope, the Popes, thought that that was a part of his religious power, and then with some side benefits of also controlling the economy. Whereas on the flip side, the secular leaders thought that, well, hey, this is a major economic part of my empire, empire or my kingdom and oh i get the side benefit of appointing the religious leader too so you can definitely see where there's going to be a major point of contact there or point of conflict there i should say
1: Absolutely. And then, I mean, I'm sure you'll get into this as it relates to the French church and and the particular kind of prerogatives that the French kings insisted upon having in terms of nominating the bishops within their realms eventually. But you've got to remember to to, to build on your point that, you know, for those members of the audience that aren't necessarily as familiar with, you know, how to think about about this particular topic is that when you're thinking about bishops, you know, because they have so much control over economically valuable pieces of land and, and entire economies, entire towns and, and, and small urban communities, not only do they possess significant wealth, um, and we're, we're in a time now where land means power and land means wealth far more than it does today, um, but it also means that bishops actually have small armies or, or at least uh, forces that they can contribute to a king. So when you see uh, civil wars and civil strife, particularly um, in Europe, and, and I'm thinking at the moment in particular of the Holy Roman Empire, you know, people will call upon bishops for the wealth that they can offer um, a particular campaign, but also the military forces as well. So, you know, the these positions of religious authority were really temporal leaders as well. They were the leaders of their own little duchies or bishoprics or states. You know, I mean, proto-state would be a better term for it, um, but they they were much more of a ruler in everyday government affairs than we would think of bishops today. And and, and then the two roles compared to how we think of a bishop today and how a bishop was, say, a thousand years ago, uh, are vastly different.
0: Yeah, I think that's really important to point out for sure. And I, just to jump off of that. And I'm sure uh, both of us along the way will be using terms like Italy and France, England, Germany, but those places wouldn't exist for a long, long time. Germany was a Holy Roman Empire was a patchwork of duchies and uh, France was in the same situation. Spain, they're all a a total patchwork of medieval chiefdoms and that had all these different connections to each other, and they were not states as stuff as such. England was probably the only one that would really get something close to what we might think of as a modern state. Well the way
1: I describe it is particularly when you're thinking about the Holy Roman Empire, is that if you get like, if you if you kind of put down a map of modern day Europe and you got a glue stick, um, I don't know if that's what you call it in the States, but there's uh, some glue and you put it all over modern day Germany, a little bit of Switzerland, a little bit of Eastern France, Western Poland, Austria, et cetera. And then you pick up like a bucket of glitter and throw <laughs> it at that map and then pick up the map and shake it off a little bit and then look at, at this all this colourful little uh, beautiful artwork that you've created. And if each one of those pieces of glitter was its own independent political entity, that's the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and it's a slight exaggeration, but you're literally, you know, you're talking about at times hundreds of little independent cities, independent towns, bishoprics, duchies provinces it's just um it's just chaotic and and that didn't exactly exist to the same extent in say france or italy um but you did have um a range of territories larger duchies provinces etc and in the case of france you know what that resulted is as the as you know the french state grew it was inheriting all these um independent political entities so as they became part of the French state they brought in all sorts of independent customs and traditions as well um so at this point in time yes when we're talking about France and to your point as we, we're talking about France and Italy and Germany what we're really talking about is the political entities that were located in these modern states but these modern states did not exist you know in the case of Italy and Germany they didn't exist as unified states until the 1800s
0: also the- Culturally, each one of these places was a lot, there was a lot of bleeding through with culture, with language, you could go from one village to the next and get Almost what you might, even though nominally they're speaking French or Italian or German, they're almost completely different languages. If you get a county or a duchy or a province a few away. And the thing, the thread that was really connecting all of these disparate places together was not a national identity. It was the idea that they're all Catholic, that the idea of Christendom was really people's identity over and above any proto-national idea.
1: Yeah, well, it's not. I mean, some historians make the point that it's not until the French Revolution that we start to see what we would consider to be modern day or modern nationalism. Um, And to your point, even uh, even when the French Revolution commenced, the amount of non-French speakers or the amount of uh, even French speakers that say the average Parisian would have quite a fair bit of difficulty communicating with was a significant proportion of the country. Um, and you also just had people that just didn't speak French along the the eastern border, for example. You'd have a lot of German speakers. Uh, so um, and that, that's actually part of why the church was so important, because one of the few ways that the old regime, and by that I mean the regime of kings that existed before the revolution, one of the few ways that they could actually get things done was by working with the church, because they would lo- work with local priests and cures and bishops to disseminate royal edicts and royal proclamations. And that was one of the few ways that they could actually, uh, you know, govern a country, in the case of France, that was so non homogeneous in nature, uh, in terms of its culture, and in terms of its language.
0: And the whole idea of a lingua franca of Latin, Latin was a key way of administration to just tie all of these disparate things together. And it wouldn't be until, like you're saying, the French Revolution, and the time after that, that countries are going to invent basically schooling systems to teach a standard dialect of French, Italian, English, and and probably in a lot of reasons today, that's why you and I even speaking English can speak to each other. If things had been a little different, we might not have been able to, over the course of generations, even communicate with each other in English, we'd be speaking our own regional dialects. And we'd have to speak something like Latin or something together to be able to even communicate.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's probably a few people that think Australian slang is is complicated enough, <laughs> even with it. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things that I mean, you know, you mentioned education. Um, it's one of those things where one the revolution actually uh, took an awful lot of time, focused on education and how to overhaul the education system in the creation of a, a modern French state. Now, unfortunately, the revolutionary wars. Uh, kind of took precedence in terms of of their focus and their attention, and so they didn't get to implement all their grand plans. Uh, But again, things like a standardized national language and a standardized national education system, they are quite modern ideas. And prior to that, it was the church that played a large role in education and, and communication across geographies that, to your point, you know, might have had very little to do with each other except for their common faith. Um, or at least until the Reformation when their common faith became a,
0: a little less common. There's a couple more points I think that are worth bringing up just to get us all on the same page going into the late 18th century, and at least in the the, the papal church part of this equation, is the Avignon papacy and then the suppression of the uh Templars, I mean, we're skipping a lot of things, we're skipping the Crusades, and but I think these couple of key points will at least illuminate kind of what was going on, and with the Avignon Papacy. That was um, basically a time when the French monarchs took over the papacy and the curia and the whole apparatus of the Catholic Church during most of the 1300s. Avignon is a city in southern France, and it's it's interesting because it's almost near where Italy, France, and the Holy Roman Empire. I believe part of uh, uh, the papal enclave of Avignon bordered the Holy Roman Empire, even though in today's terms, Avignon is pretty securely inside of France. I mean, that shows you how complicated that time period was. Uh, the This whole Avignon papacy was a very ugly time in papal history. It's uh, also the time of the Black Death, so there's a lot of pretty rough and tumble stuff going on there. During this time period, the popes were French, and the cardinals were mostly French, and it was fairly much completely run by the French kings. All of this wouldn't end until the Council of Constance in 1418, where uh, there was three popes at the time. there was there was a, a movement always to get things back to Rome of course the french kind of liked what was going on with having it in avignon but there was a a pope in rome i think there might have been two popes in rome and then there's the pope in avignon and basically the council of constance that all of them got to go and we're going to pick a new person and it was probably what actually saved the papacy as an institution, because I mean, how long could it go on having three claimants? I mean, it was that that can't go on forever. Uh, one thing that happened slightly before, but kind of at the same time as the transition to the Avignon papacy was the suppression of the Templars. And the papacy was pretty on board with the Templars. And with the Templars, that's a whole its own can of worms. But it was basically the French kings were totally in hock to the Templars financially, and they wanted the Templars out of the way. The popes found that the Templars were still a pretty useful organization, but the popes wound up just caving entirely to what the French king wanted. There's also a rise of something called Gallicanism, which the French church It was really the French church separating itself from the the church in general. They were still in communion with Rome and with Spain and all the other Catholic churches, but they were really trying to emphasize the the Frenchness of their church. Uh, Kind of like if anybody's familiar with the Eastern churches, the Church of Bulgaria, the Church of Russia, Constantinople, Romania, they're all... Independent of each other, but they're all kind of pulling in the same direction, you might say. They, the, the Gallican church, they wanted to really be their own thing with the Pope of Rome as sort of a titular first among equals, but the day to day operations were going to be all in house inside of, a, of the French church or the Gallican church. Then we get the Protestant Reformation, and that's a major pinch on papal religious power. But really, doesn't change anything going on inside of the papal state, the secular power. But then, at the same time, when you have the power of the popes contracting in Europe, they lose basically half of the continent to the Protestant Reformation. There's a huge expansion of the Catholic Church in the New World, in in North America, South America, in the East, uh, the Far East of uh, Asia. Then in the 1500s, there's a really big pushback by the Catholic Church of the Counter-Reformation, and you get the rise of the Jesuits who are really starting to push back on the protestants then the the one last thing and that's the major part of the uh, counter-reformation is the council of trent in the 1500s and that's where we get the idea starting of a much more muscular papacy on religious terms and secular terms and it won't always play out successfully but it's the idea is starting to get set that the popes have this secular power in the papal states, but they also are supreme or they should be supreme amongst the Catholic Church. Now, in France, you have the, the rise of the Huguenots, and then they really get uh, pushed down with their they're severely persecuted Uh a lot of them wind up going to north america and the uh, colonies of no- the english colonies of north america and that really leaves france doesn't get super affected by the protestant reformation and, and really does remain a catholic state but it's also influenced by the the protestants in that they want some freedom from the papacy and we'll kind of see how that plays out Going into the French Revolution in the later part of the 18th century.
1: Yeah, and it's one of those things. So that if you think about the Reformation in France, yes, when France gets to the French Revolution, it's a predominantly a Catholic country. About 97% of the population is nominally Catholic, but like many countries uh, during the that kind of Reformation period and immediately afterwards, the there was quite a bit of. Religious and civil unrest as a result of the Reformation, and and you've already mentioned the Huguenots there. Um, Between in the kind of the the latter half of the 1500s, France experienced uh, quite considerable amounts of civil war or religious-inspired civil war because of the Protestant and Catholic uh, churches or members of of their communities that had had become either protestant um or had become protestant instead of catholic and it's actually worth noting that two successive french kings were assassinated as a direct result of uh, the religious tensions of those times so henry iii and henry the fourth um and so it was even though france came through uh the that period of time uh nominally quite a Catholic country, uh, in part because of some of the reforms that Louis XIV introduced in the decades after um, that unrest, you know, it's it didn't escape it entirely. Um, and so while you don't have a situation, like you say, have in uh, some of the states the Holy Roman Empire, which had quite large uh, Christian minorities, um, you, you do, you know, France, you know, was by no means immune um, to some of that unrest
0: yeah it really that you make the point that france was about 97% catholic and there really was a, a spectrum where you have the enlightenment coming up where people are as, especially in certain quarters of the society are starting to break away from religion but then you have a, a core who are Super Catholic, but even within that, they're starting to bifurcate into groups that are really pro papal, but also groups that are really pro Gallican or for the, uh, a national regional church. So even amongst the, the religious, you're getting uh, splits.
1: Hello, everybody. This is a quick ad break for our sponsor. Joking, I don't have a sponsor. Well, that's not quite true. While transnational corporations are hardly interested in advertising on a small niche history podcast, there are dozens of people helping to keep Grey History on the air. Those people are the Patreon supporters of the show. And it's those people who you should thank for making joint episodes like this even possible. For as little as $2 a regular episode, you can join the Grey History community on Patreon and do your bit to sponsor the podcast. That's only half a cup of coffee, but it really does help me pay the bills and focus bringing you more Grey History more often. In addition to all the warm, fuzzy feelings you'll get for helping to sustain one of your favourite history podcasts, you'll also gain access to a whole bunch of exclusive content. Bonus episodes, episode extras, and behind the scenes videos. Some tiers also gain early access to future episodes, the ability to feature in the show as a voiceover, and handwritten thank you cards. But the regular show and all the additional content I have planned is only possible if I can continue to work on Grey History. And that will only happen if more listeners of the show support the podcast on Patreon. So please, Help keep Grey History on the air and support the show on Patreon today. There's links in the show notes and on the website, or you can just Google Grey History Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Let's get back to the show with part two on the Catholic Church and revolutionary France.
0: What's going on in France? What gets us to this revolution? Why is France going to have really it, a lot of people will say the, the modern period starts a hundred, 200 years later, but in a lot of ways we're getting modern right now in the French revolution.
1: Yeah. So i maybe I'll start with how the church, what the church is looking like at this point in time, and then, and then build out into what's happening more broadly in French society. So to pick up on the point that you were just talking about, um, The French Church, or or the Church within France, on the eve of the Revolution, was incredibly divided. When we talk about the French Revolution and French society, we generally use the term the Three Estates, and that's because every member of society belonged to one of these Estates. And you can think of them; they're not quite like classes; they're a bit more like castes. Uh, And essentially, the first Estate was members of the Church, the second Estate were members of the nobility, and the third Estate was everyone else, or the commoners. So the vast majority of the population sat within the third estate Um, but if you look at those three estates they all had their own internal tensions and internal divisions but you could definitely make the argument that it was the first estate it was the church that was the most divided and if you start to have a look at the 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 situation with the church it's just an absolute mess of competing interests and priorities and so and, and this is very important to understand how the revolution really kicks off because at key points in time it will be the church or in particular um, members of the church who were originally commoners that will push uh, uh, the kind of their weight in favor of the commoners or the third estate and really energize the revolution at at particular points in time. Um, Now there's a range of reasons why the church was seeing a whole bunch of tension. You were mentioning that there were some that were more in the spirit, uh, spirit of the Gallican church where they wanted a kind of separate but equal um, status for the church alongside the Pope, you know, they, they wanted to be in communion with the Pope, but they didn't want the Pope to be intervening in French affairs. Um, you also had tensions between the lower clergy, so people that originally came from, uh, say, the middle class backgrounds, or um, those from the higher clergy, the upper, the kind of higher bishops and, and archbishops, who were almost always aristocrats originally. And so, you know, to give you a taste of what some of this looked like, um, if you take the Archbishop of Strasbourg, for example, he had a yearly stipend of 450,000 levers per year. a priest would earn about 750, which is a 600 times difference. Uh, you then overlay onto that, that the church is not meant to be a profit-making corporation, but is actually meant to be providing charitable means, poor relief, hospitals, uh, moral and spiritual guidance. And the misuse or the extravagancies of the higher clergy create a lot of resentment and tension between them and members of you know, the lower clergy, who who in some cases, particularly if they were in the countryside, might live, you know, very, very modest lives. And so the church was really just this uh, can of contradictions immediately prior to the revolution. Um, if we take a step back and then go, well, what about church within French society immediately prior to the revolution? As I said before, nominally, 97% of the country was Catholic. Um, the church also only being about 0.5% of the French population owned about 10% of French property, French land. And if you think about uh, land in these times, land and wealth are synonymous, they're, they're joined at the hip much more than they are today where where most of the richest people in the world have, have made their money through means other than real estate and, and direct land um, enrichment. So, uh, the church was in this great position, but if you then scratch under the surface, uh, to your point around um, things like the Enlightenment and the like, it wasn't necessarily as strong as it might look. Two years prior to the revolution in, nine, in 1787, um, there was toleration granted for Protestants, uh, which was seen as a real blow to uh, French Catholics who believed that they should have a monopoly on Uh, religion within the state. You also have evidence of waning, um, uh, well, kind of adherence to orthodox views. So, for example, in the century prior to the revolution, the number of pregnant brides almost doubles in number the number of priests actually almost declines by half. So there's a range of facts that you can look at and go, well, yes, the country is nominally 97% Catholic, but you know only half of Parisians were taking communion on a regular basis. So just how Catholic France was is a bit of a matter of debate. It's not quite clear. Um, the one thing I would say to that, however, is that particular communities it, it very much changed on a regional level and so you, you at this point in time only one in five frenchmen would have lived in a community of more than 2000 people it is primarily a rural um a rural state you know if you think about that the average citizen probably lived in a community of somewhere between six to eight hundred people you know if you're on if you live in a city and you get on a packed train in the morning uh you know your train could be your entire community that you were living in at this time so um, what that meant is that particular communities were still very much true believers and their priests and bishops played uh, a huge role in their everyday lives. Uh, now if I take all the way, step back and go okay well what's this revolution and and where are we? You know, where are we? Um, after the American Revolutionary War, uh, the French participated in that war, and essentially that and other conflicts bankrupted the French state. And the state uh, needed to raise uh, tax revenues because they could not meet their budget deficit as well as service their existing loans. And to do that, Uh, they needed to start taxing the first and second estate. They needed to start taxing the church as well as the aristocrats who, by and large, got out of paying any sort of tax burden. It's not, it's a little complicated, but by and large, they got out of it. And so um, the aristocrats and members of the church unsurprisingly said, you know, no, we don't want to pay any taxes um, and tried to use it to their advantage. And in many ways, the the French Revolution actually starts a bit more of an, as an aristocratic revolt than anything else. Um, however, as those groups are arguing for political power, the commoners, the third estate, take advantage of a range of things, including reduced censorship, enlightenment ideas, and also powered on by uh, high costs of living and high bread prices and the hardships that those produce to essentially create a more general revolutionary and revolt-like environment. Um, the the, The royal government is forced to call an advisory body, a traditional advisory body called the Estates General, which hadn't met in almost 200 years. The royal government was quite against doing that because they felt like if they called the Estates General, that would be a nod towards the kind of constitutional monarchy that Great Britain or England at this point in time had. Um, but they had to do so anyway. And sure enough, uh, as the, you know, the the nightmare of the Royalists came true and that advisory body known as the Estates General uh, proceeded to go rogue and unilaterally declare itself the National Assembly and place upon itself uh, powers akin to something like a parliament or a Congress, as well as a constitutional convention. Uh, And it is worth noting just before I wrap up there that um, at key points in time in uh the deadlock between uh the estates general and members of the government it was members of the church particularly the lower clergy that actually backed the commoners and broke the deadlock in their favor and so we see initially although the revolution and the church end up being arch enemies and you get essentially what is a holy war, you get a de campaign, you get a complete, you get a prisoner pope, it's, it's a complete mess. But initially in 1789, you actually get many prominent revolutionaries coming from the lower clergy. And initially, the church, or at least mem- some members of the church and the third estate, you know, not only don't have a hostile attitude towards each other, but are actually working in, in a cooperative manner.
0: Yeah, you bring up so many interesting issues, and I think one of them is, and that I didn't fully understand, was how split each of these estates was, that the third estate, there were bourgeois who were even though they were technically third estate people, they were pretty wealthy, but then you also had peasants who were completely uh, poor. But even amongst the, the aristocracy, you had dirt poor aristocrats and then obviously super wealthy And then inside of the church, you have these fabulously wealthy bishops, bishops kind of in the middle of that, priests and bishops. And then, you know, your town bishop or town priest, rather, who was dirt poor. And it creates all sorts of different politics. Like you could honestly see why a poor town Priest or maybe a bishop of kind of a backwater place might want a connection to somebody like the Pope because it's the Pope can be somebody to play off of this bigger bishop. Uh, I'm not really, you know, yeah, I have to answer to my archbishop in Strasbourg or Paris or something, but come on, guys, let's be honest. The Pope's really the big guy here, and the Pope should be telling you what to do to try and help me out a little bit.
1: Well, and indeed, so so one of the great things about the French Revolution is just before that estates general, that advisory body was summoned by the king, all the estates were asked to draft up uh, what in English we call lists of grievances. So each community, each little kind of parish around the, the country, um, and then within that, the members of the clergy, the members of the nobility and the members of the commoners separately drafted up a list of grievances. And so we have thousands of documents, knowing what the chief grievances and the chief problems of communities are all across France before what is one of, if not the greatest revolution uh, in, in modern times. And you can see within those lists of grievances for the church that each individual community has just got its own priorities and its own problems that it's trying to solve and you know the rhyme or reason between them you know between geographies can, it, it can be so incredibly diverse but one of the themes that you pick up on there are some common um complaints and one of them for example is absentee bishops so you'll see priests complaining that their bishop or their archbishop has essentially you know being installed into that into that diocese and then has gone off to the court in versailles and is essentially living the high life maybe gambling maybe drinking a little too much and is and is absent from the community that they're meant to be looking after and so that's to your point that's where someone like the the pope or the king would be great to be able to call upon and you know, ensure bishops of merit and ensure that they weren't absentee. And in fact, some of the reforms that the revolutionaries will force upon the church will focus on some of these common grievances.
0: Maybe it's a little bit of a break before we jump into the the revolution proper. When you're doing your research, do you see a difference? I don't know how much, um, and I have I, don't I don't think I've gotten to the point where you, you talk about your sources uh, in specific, but do you get into uh, French sources? Do they have maybe a different spin on it than maybe the French Revolution than what we might get in uh, reading the sources through an English eye, uh, you might say? Uh, so I suppose um, there's two ways to answer that question. So So
1: first of all, I would say, a significant number of the sources that I use uh, were originally from French historians or French writers or French eyewitnesses that have been translated into English, um, which helps give you a different perspective. Although, of course, you can, uh, in the, in the process of translation, um, you know, kind of change the subtleties and nuances of of what the text is trying to to convey originally. Um, In terms of the you know kind of raw French text, I don't speak French, uh, so um, kind of there is definitely times when I'll see a footnote in uh, an English text, for example, that's referencing a French text, and I really want to understand what that foot you know you know it's maybe a few sentences, and I actually want to try to figure out what what's the page or the the chapter that that uh, source is referencing, um, in which case. You know you can kind of reach out to members of the community or the supporters of the show french speakers that you know and get them to help translate a larger piece of work uh you know a few pages or the like so that you can get a better sense of of that fact or that quote or whatever it might be that you saw in an english text but um you know as someone who's not a french speaker i am limited in 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 that so the the best that i can do is to make sure that there are um, French historians and French eyewitnesses that I, I'm reading, uh, in addition to, you know, historians from other countries, and and also a big thing of of what I try to do is you, is you're trying to to not only read material uh, from uh, contemporaries and eyewitnesses both inside of France and outside of France at the time, but also in the decades and centuries afterwards. And so if you know, in, in my show, I put a premium on bringing in. Um, the opinions of historians and contemporaries and eyewitnesses some people that are you are hearing from you know you might hear from someone who has published their work in 2015 and that is then you know being compared to or or being uh, built upon by someone who has published their work in you know 1847 it really varies Um, there's there's no shortage of materials on the French Revolution which which makes um, which means there's a lot of reading to do but it's also um, you get quite a, a good view of the thing
0: Initially, the French Revolution really seems to parallel the American Revolution, but then they really greatly diverge. What's what's happening in the French Revolution?
1: Yeah, so I suppose, um, so absolutely, they initially um, seem to have much greater parallels. Um, And in fact, you know, initially, uh, just after uh, the revolution commences, the Marquis de Lafayette, who plays quite a prominent role in the American Revolution, Um, He's a member of the Estates General, which transforms into the National Assembly, and he actually introduced um, a document, uh, the Declarations of Rights of Men, that he, um, you know, was very much modelled on the American model. Um, But for a variety of reasons, the revolutionaries do not follow the American model. So, for example, they decline to introduce a Senate. They will only have one chamber in their national legislature. Um, but in terms of why the two diverge so much i mean that's a complicated question but in 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 a quick answer one big thing is that the revolution you're dealing you're dealing with a with a much older country with with very powerful uh very wealthy institutions being the church and the aristocracy and you're dealing with a nation that is literally surrounded by enemies um now yes the english and the and the spanish were maybe not the most menacing for the revolution, but in particular, the, the, the Austrians, the Prussians, the Holy Roman empire, the papacy, you know, the, the revolution really does feel that it's in a corner against entrenched counter-revolutionary aristocratic, uh, papal, eventually papal interest. And so that creates a culture of fear and conspiracy, that you just don't get in the American Revolution. And, and that, that drives the revolutionaries towards war. It will actually be the French that creates or starts the Revolutionary Wars in 1792. Um, and it's the Revolutionary slash Napoleonic Wars that gripped the, the continent for a quarter of a century. Um, and so, th- so that's one big thing. You're dealing with a country that has, you know, institutionalized... Wealthy opposition to the reforms that are being introduced, and can call upon, or or at least they think they can call upon, foreign armies um, to to literally, you know, kill the kill the baby in the crib, so to speak. And so so that is a big factor as to why you have a very different culture of the revolutionary conscious than you do in in the American Revolution, amongst other reasons. But that that would be one of the obvious things to point to.
0: Yeah, one thing that I was. Uh thinking is maybe the American Revolution would have gone in a French Revolution if certain things like Shays' Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion, the more populist aspects Uh, where the the American uh, third estate, you could almost call them, if they had pushed some of these issues and the the central government had lost control of them and the the more the proper government, the state's governments had really lost control, then you might've seen things really go down a very different path of maybe a more French revolutionary path.
1: Yeah, I'm not as familiar with the the American Revolution, but one thing that you were when you, while you were talking that did come to mind is you you do have in the French Revolution in particular, you know, Paris is is just this giant metropolis for the times. So you know we're dealing with a country at this point in time that is about 26 million people. There's only eight towns or or, or regional centres that are above 50,000 people in size. And Paris is sitting at maybe, call it 700,000. So it is this huge metropolis. And so um, that gives the heart of the revolution immense power. Um, And you don't quite have... Well, you just don't have the, the 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 states in the American Revolution, which have, have which are already thinking them of themselves as political entities that are joining together. That idea doesn't really exist in um in France. The 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 old regime, um, the regime prior to the revolution had incredibly uh, centralizing tendencies. Um There was some decentralization initially when the revolution started to get going but then once the war kicked in and necessity kicked in it it became incredibly centralized again so you're just dealing with a a situation where for a variety of reasons um the the country just was not um you you know it, it was just a it was a much bigger country with it with a much longer and complicated history which combined with the challenges it faced, you know, was, was quite different. Even though some of the inspirational ideas for the revolution were similar to the American revolution, the challenges and the situation it found itself in was, was actually probably more different than most people might think.
0: Where did the revolution go? How did it, in short, as short as we can, uh, as an overview go after this point of, uh, when it starts to go down the road of more violence and more, uh, it's it's definitely not going to just be a mild reforms. It's going all in.
1: Yeah. So it's actually the revolution's conflict with the church actually has a has a decent um uh a, a decent impact on why the revolution you know morphs into the the revolution that it does. So maybe I'll just start with with how the relationship with the church soured, and then use that to springboard more broadly. So initially, as I said. The the kind of all consuming conflict between the revolution and the Catholic Church and the papacy just didn't exist. There were many prominent revolutionaries in the National Assembly, at least initially, that came from the church. However, as uh, the National Assembly started to reform the country, and 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 with the old regime, you're dealing with a very um, ar- archaic and outdated, and and just illogical. Um, system of government that they were trying to standardise and rationalise, they inevitably started to want to reform the church. And one of the first things that they did, which really created, um, you know, a fair bit of tension, but wasn't, wasn't um, an irreversible split, was they nationalised church property. So the church owned 10% of French land and depending on the community, they might even own a greater proportion of that land. So they owned almost uh, 25% of the property in Paris, for example. And as I mentioned earlier, the key reason why we get the French Revolution in the form that we do is that the state was facing bankruptcy. They they had a financial crisis where they could not pay their bills. And so the revolutionaries looked over to the church with this huge amount of wealth and huge amount of land and pretty much said to themselves, well, we've got a use for that. And so what the revolutionaries did is that they forcibly seized, they forcibly nationalized church property. And the logic that they used for this was essentially that the reason why the church was so wealthy was that over the centuries, French nationals, French citizens had donated property to the church and the church was meant to use that property to provide Things like poor relief to sponsor hospitals, to sponsor poor houses, to provide education um, and also to do things that we would nowadays associate with a secular government, such as maintain, you know, the registers for births and deaths and marriage. And so the, the the new national government, the National Assembly, pretty much said, well, what we'll do is we'll partly take responsible for some of those things. We will start to pay the priests out of the national Uh, budget you know they will essentially become salaried employees of the state and uh as a result because we're paying the priests and because this land was originally donated to the church for the benefit of the french nation well the french nation needs it and so the way it's going to benefit the french nation is the government essentially seizing it and then selling it off to meet their their budgetary demands um Now, initially, this did not create an irreversible split with the church. There were some members of the church that were actually supportive of this. They thought that this would remove some of the corruption of the church, some of the opulence of the church, return the church to its more traditional um, uh, priorities of preaching and being moral and spiritual guidance and not being caught up in the, the trappings of wealth. But, of course, the vast majority of the church, and, of course, the Pope, we're, we're dead against this um but then what we have over you know that's so that's you know the revolution really kicks off in mid1789 the nationalization of church property towards happens towards the end of 1789 but it's in the middle of the next year that that things really just to you know just go go haywire really um and that's with a policy that's called the civil constitution of the clergy and this policy, was seeking to do a range of things. But essentially what it was seeking to do was reform the Catholic Church so that it could be a a church that would act in harmony with the new constitutional monarchy and also be separate but potentially equal to the the papacy. And so it was seeking to modernise the church. And so what it was seeking to do was introduce a whole bunch of things that some of those lists of grievances had demanded. So, for example, it started to crack down on absentee bishops um, and it sought to make bishops and priests uh, be nominated by merit. And so the way that it wanted to do this was actually to introduce elections. I mean, the big one of the big things about the French Revolution is the introduction of democratic values and, and eventually uh, universal male suffrage. Um, and so what they wanted to do was introduce um, elections for priests and for bishops, um, because, and, and the argument was, was well, these individuals are now salaried employees of the state, and so therefore, like every other salaried employee of the state, they should be elected. Now, the problem here, there was a few problems here, but one of the key problems here was that meant that any citizen, any French citizen, could participate in these elections, which meant that Protestants atheists, um, people of other religions could potentially participate in these elections. It also meant that some of the most uh, passionate believers in the Catholic faith, uh, in particular women, so half, you know, half the congregation, were not allowed to vote in these elections. Uh, so that was one thing that the civil constitution did. Another thing was that it tried to standardize the various um parishes and dioceses of the country, which resulted in a significant amount of changes. It was trying to standardize things, um, reduce like the overlap and duplication. Uh, But what that meant in that some communities is that their local parish church would have to close down because they were running on the assumption that you'd only have one parish church for every 6,000 people. Um, In a city like Paris, for example, which had 52 parish churches, it would lose Um, or parishes, it would lose 19 of its parishes. So there was a significant amount of closure of religious buildings and the like as a result of these reforms. And then finally, the main thing that they did, and you'll be able to talk about just how infuriating this would be to, uh, to a papacy that saw itself as being more muscular, is that they essentially banned bishops from being able to bring in the Pope in any dispute. Um, the 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 king and the French Church um, were completely, you know, were functionally separate from the Roman Catholic Church and the Prince of Rome. They could inform the Pope about what they were up to, but literally that was the extent of what they could do. Um, they weren't allowed to appeal to the Pope to adjudicate on anything and the pope was not allowed to get involved in matters of the french church they they wanted to create a separate entity and you can imagine just how you know intolerable that was to um you know to the pope now where this started to really go wrong is that some of the uh, p- bishops and priests um pretty much said that they weren't willing to sign up to this you know they weren't willing to have their parish closed they weren't willing to uh have Protestants helped to elect Catholic priests and so they started to refuse to comply with the wills of the government and the government believing that this really was an administration issue that the church had no right to oppose and in fact viewed the church as corrupt in some regards and and therefore you know of course they were going to resist it essentially started forcing it uh, forcing it through and eventually they required all priests to take an oath of allegiance to the law and to the country and to the constitution and about half of the priests across France refused to do so, uh, particularly by the time that the Pope came out and, and publicly condemned these reforms. And so that then created, you know, what was essentially a schism between the revolution and the church where you had half the priests of the country willing to swear an oath of loyalty and allegiance to the constitution and the other half not willing to, and so we call these the these, second group of priests uh, refractory clergy, or non-constitutional clergy, or non-juring clergy. And essentially, they refused to move. They refused to, to to leave their churches. They refused to leave their parishes, and they insisted on continuing to preach. But they did so without the authority of the government. And they would often heckle, and intervene, and harass those priests who we call constitutional or patriotic priests that did take the oath and were subsequently elected into office. And so all across the country in every city, in every town, in every small rural community, you start to get this um, battle between constitutional priests who took an oath to the constitution and non-constitutional priests who have followed the Pope and who are refusing to obey these new rules. Um, The Parts of the country, it very much differs on how this looks like. So in some parts of the country, um, you know, the proportion of priests that swear the oath versus not swear the oath, maybe you have 80% versus 20%. And in other parts of the country, it might be a more even 50-50 split. There's a whole bunch of analysis about things that might have driven this behavior. So for example, priests that were less financially secure, older priests were more likely to take the oath because then they could get the salaried, um their salary from the fed from the federal government. Um, those priests that were, say, um, lived in towns and were surrounded by other priests and not as isolated were more likely to reject the oath. Um, likewise, priests that had aristocratic backgrounds or more wealthy backgrounds were more likely to reject the oath, while those that were from, say, the lower middle class that really valued the education that they might receive in the church were more likely to take it. So uh, geographically, it's this real hodgepodge where some regions you might get 90% swearing the oath, and in other regions, you might get 90% refusing to do so.
0: I mean, that's really fascinating, and it shows you how uh, diverse it was. Oh, it's just it's divisive. It's,
1: yeah, absolutely. Like it's the thing about the, the the French Revolution is that you just cannot talk about France as one entity because it, it, it at a at a regional level it's just so different and so unique. Um, now, to get to your question of what why did this start going? You know, why did the revolution start souring? Well. As the revolution became more and more obsessed with the danger of counter-revolution, of nobles, of aristocrats, who particularly had left the country and were now walking around Europe trying to rally uh, Prussian and German and Italian armies to invade and crush the revolution, um, you know the revolutionaries, the patriots within France, started to become more and more worried about fifth column elements, about, about traitors within, about seditious plots, And you've got these priests, literally tens of thousands of priests across the country that are getting up in churches that, you know, that they, from the government's point of view, shouldn't be in, and are preaching, essentially, that the people should ignore the federal government. Um, And worse still, they are preaching the authority of the Pope, they are maybe preaching various things that, um, that collide with the official line from Paris. And so over time, these priests start to be viewed as enemies of the revolution. And so then when you get into a situation where France finds itself at war, that war actually starts quite terribly and then france starts to get invaded you know it, it doesn't take much to see how these priests go from a nuisance to actually a seditious element that is undermining the war effort and undermining the revolution and in cahoots with the pope and other aristocrats and their objective to crush the revolution and to bring back uh the old regime and so from there you know, you can see how you get the government starts passing laws about banishing priests, forcibly detaining priests and and removing them from French territory. Um, and so you can start to see how the snowball starts rolling down the hill. And before long, particularly when the Prussian army is almost at the gates of Paris, you know, these priests, which are, which are number half of the priests in France, are, are viewed as enemies of the people. Um, and so that in conjunction with the war is really what really radicalizes the revolution. Um, in addition to things like uh high cost of living, high bread prices, uh, high, uh, you know, um, the, the just the, the, raw necessities of life being quite unobtainable, you get a very radical, um, you get a very radical, radicalized situation, which then leads to quite bloody situations. Um, and, and ultimately results in a, de- well, you know, a, a semi-state-sponsored uh, de-Christianisation campaign. Hello everybody, this is a quick reminder that I need your help, not someone else's, but yours, to keep Grey History running. Patreon supporters of the show gain an ad-free feed, so no mid-episode interruptions like this one. They also gain access to almost half a dozen bonus episodes, along with all the episode extras that accompany the regular show. You're not going to want to miss the episode extra on the Battle of Valmy for the upcoming episode on the invasion of France. So support the show today by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can cancel any For as little as $2 a regular episode, you can help keep Grey History on the air.
0: you, you really do see how things could turn so quickly. The, the government sees that this, you have this wealthy church, well, let's nationalize it and use that money for our own purposes. But you only get one bite of that apple. And once you burn through that, then you've got to move on to the next thing. And you can see when the populations throughout history get very grumpy when the p- percentage of their budget that's devoted to food starts to creep up creep up and then it just explodes that's when you really see things start to fall apart I mean that's inflation
1: well it's funny that you you mentioned that because all these things are playing off each other right so for example the government starts seizing church property starts seizing church property and starts either selling it off or uh, essentially issuing uh, what is an effect bonds against the properties that they now control? But they start issuing this land and selling off um, this paper currency at such speed to meet their own needs that that starts to create an inflationary environment. Furthermore, um, you know, these uh, this paper currency, which is backed by the revolution, is absolutely worthless if the aristocrats or the counter-revolution uh, successfully overturns the revolution. So you've got this real risk that the paper money that you've just been given um, might be worthless in a few months time if the counter-revolution succeeds and so what you end up is you end up with an inflationary environment and then combined into that for example say shortages that are produced by the war effort where the army is forcibly requisitioning carts for the war effort but then those carts can't be used to transport grain and all of a sudden you've got a whole host of factors which are driving up the cost of bread and that then creates an even more radical um an energised situation in the capital, which, um, you know, are being told by some members of the press that the reason why grain prices are so high is because the priests are hoarding the grain and destroying the grain. When in reality, you know, that, that wasn't the case, but all these factors play into each other in in a way that, you know, is impossible to see at the time. And it's only, you know, in the kind of in hindsight with all the facts that you can kind of pin it together Um, and inflation, you know, um, was was a hot button issue in the French Revolution, um, and it's nice to see. You know, I mean, at the moment, you know, inflation I think is on everybody's lips. Having having spent the last two and a half years subtly putting inflation jokes in the podcast, it's nice that you know everyone everyone wants to talk about it.
0: Yeah, you're right. You were ahead of the curve on that. Now, I, I think it's interesting too that once um, once this inflation kicks in, and it's really it's something that governments. I, maybe we're getting a little controversial with economics, but I think history bears this out, is once inflation gets kicked off, it's easy to get started, but it's very difficult to get under control.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you see that within the, the French Revolution um, itself, the the paper currency that the government introduced, essentially, um, you know, it does not hold its worth and it, it wildly fluctuates and creates all sorts of hardship. I mean, more broadly... You know, inflation, <laughs> it's a beast that is best tamed. Um, and I mean, it will be fascinating to see, you know, how things play out. I mean, it's not something, you know, I'm, I'm from a one of, I suppose one of the younger generations. So inflation is not something that my generation has seen before. Um, so, you know, I'm, uh, obviously, um, you know, from, from the perspective of me that wants to pay my bills, I want it to go away as soon as possible from the uh, inner historian part of me. You know, I'm kind of curious as to just how this will work in the monetary environment that we have at the moment, and and you know, my, my background is actually finance, and and you know, I'm kind of fascinated to see you know how central bank actions going to change, but we're well and truly veering off uh, the French Revolution <laughs> at this point.
0: <laughs> One thing that I think plays into what you were talking about is that. There was a couple of things going on is one is that the popes of the 17th and 18th century, they were not they they were pretty secure in their power in the papal states, but they weren't very muscular, really pushing their their Broader religious power in the rest of Europe. They just weren't the. It was just a string of not the strongest popes uh, uh, you've uh, you've ever seen. And that's what really gets us into the French Revolution is that you you don't have popes with um, popes like Pius the the sixth. He just doesn't have much backbone to push back against what was going on in revolutionary France. But there are some other churchmen, theologians, who are really putting forward this idea of an ultramontane church, um, ultramontane meaning the other side of the mountains, uh, being that the religious focus should be all in Rome but in the time leading up in the in the late 18th century there's a lot of different regional movements gallicanism in France for one but there's jansenism ferronianism josephism some of those are more focused in the in austria hungary some of them are in germany but they're all different different uh isms that are saying that now the pope should have less power but uh, on the other side you have different theologians who are saying "No, no 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 the pope needs to have not just more power religiously the pope needs to have all the power
1: yeah, well, it's it's, it's you know you, to mention some of those isms that are that are occurring in other European states. You know, some of the reforms that I was just talking about about nationalizing property and, and forcing reforms upon the local Catholic Church. Um, the the uh, the Austrians were actually doing something quite similar to that immediately prior to the French Revolution um, with Joseph II, and I mean his predecessor. And his brother, Leopold II, will be in charge um, when the revolution really starts to kick off. And so Leopold, um, who's generally referred to as one of the more enlightened uh, monarchs of Europe, he's actually one of the first people to abolish the death penalty. That's one of his claims to fame. Um, He uh, is looking over at what the French are up to. And there's got to be part of him that's actually sympathetic to what they're trying to do. Um, And so, you know, to your point, the the papacy was was in this really odd position where, um, you know, it didn't. It's not like it has an army that it can call upon. It's really, you know, though it has uh, temporal authority in the papal states. Realistically, it's 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 religious authority that has to call upon. Um, But it, it, you know, it's got no choice but to really fight the reforms of the church because they they threaten the Pope's authority and power to such a great degree. I mean, you know, for the French to essentially say that no members of the French church can appeal to the Pope for him to adjudicate on particular issues, you're essentially relegating the Pope to, you know, just this guy that, that sits down in Rome and, and maybe occasionally comes up and and gives a, you know, a great ceremony at Easter. Um, and so the, the papacy was really given no choice but to, I mean, if it was to protect its own interest, was really given no choice but to to fight these reforms and of course members of the aristocracy including the members of the royal family and and brothers of the king were were more than happy to to try to use the pope to legitimize their efforts to to overturn the revolution um but maybe that's something that you can expand upon further about how the how the revolution kind of kicked off you know a series of events that that kind of you know further relegated the pope just to someone who had um you know, spiritual authority, but realistically, you know, couldn't command the kind of temporal authority authority that maybe, you know, popes of a few hundred years prior could.
0: Yeah, I think that this is a really good uh, time to introduce Pius VI. He is, you know, kind of a standard pope of the time, not super interested in really pushing any of the agenda of the papacy. He's pretty happy as the secular leader of the papal states. Uh, but the big thing is that the, the, when the French revolution gets going, they go, they, they went into Italy and actually toppled the papal States and Napoleon institutes and starts this Roman Republic. Napoleon arrested the Pope and brought him back to France. And it's really, it's absolutely humiliates Pius. Pius actually died in France, and they put him in the register of his birth name, not Pius. It was uh, his last name was Broski, and they just put in the register Broski and his uh, his job was listed as Pontiff or Pope. That really could have been the end of the papacy right there. But the, the, the only thing that the papacy had going for it really was that it was this transnational organization, and they were able to set up another conclave under Austrian auspices that were able to get another pope elected. But we look at this time period, I um, just to get my dates, it's a 1799, that the papacy could have ended right there. But it was able to get on to life support. And it's really a papacy on life support for a while that keeps things going. And it's not until the later, uh, the, well, the earlier part of the 19th century that the Pope's able to gain some some traction and start fighting back against this secularizing. To They'll try and tr- try as hard as they might to keep the secular authority of the papacy but what they really do well is push out all of these uh national movements all of these things like gallicanism and josephism and just completely stamp those out and that's the the ultimate ascendancy is that you have a a papacy that's almost dead in 1799 to a papacy about 70 years later that is in complete control of the entire Catholic Church. It's absolutely supreme. And that's something that you would say it's, you would never, uh, somebody standing in the Middle Ages would have never of con- conceived of a papacy that was absolutely supreme in all religious matters.
1: It's fascinating, and, and at that point in time, you know, th- this is you know the years, you know, five, ten years either side of the dates that you're talking. This is when some very long-standing institutions and some very long-standing norms are being completely and utterly torn to the ground by both the French Revolution and then the Napoleonic Empire. I mean, it's at this point in time that the Holy Roman Empire, which had existed for call it a thousand years, is essentially dissolved, and so you're dealing with institutions and traditions that are being overthrown and toppled all over the place and and, you know not 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 institutions or traditions that have existed for a couple of years or a couple of decades but literally things that have been around for centuries and you know to your point the papacy is really shaken to its absolute core um is in is in survival mode really and it is fascinating to your point that not only does it survive, uh, but it really comes to thrive in the decades, you know, that follow the end of the Napoleonic era and, and you know, into the uh, the middle of the 19th century.
0: I wonder what you think of that too, because in my mind, we're almost living in the alternate reality. And what I, I think it's so unusual and it's such almost a black swan, you might call it, that it fights against the entire current of what was happening of the Pope gaining all the religious authority, when it really seems like the whole idea of the Enlightenment is exactly what was happening with Gallicanism and Josephism, Fabronianism, all the, the various isms of separating church from state and then having the church, having all these institutions be more nationalized.
1: I think in some ways the... The separation of church and state probably helps the church a little bit. It, it it lets it focus on a core mission, which is that it's going to be a religious and moral and spiritual authority. And it's not going to, to, to compete in a power struggle with secular governments over you know things that nowadays we would consider to be the responsibility of secular governments. Um, so I think in some ways it's probably helped by that. In, in the ways of like, say, the regional tensions, I think you've got to remember that that in the experience of France in particular, as well as some, um, some countries or, or nowadays countries that were occupied by French forces, Belgium comes to mind, the experience that Catholics had in those regions was traumatic. Um, you know this the de-christianization campaign that you see in 1793 and 1794 is referred to by some historians as a genocide against catholic it is um, you know you get to a point in time where essentially there are not you know there is there is no mass being said in france Um, you you know where churches across the country are closed down and uh, vandalized and stripped of all their wealth and Um, This is an incredibly traumatic period of time for French Catholics, as well as other Catholics that were occupied under particularly um, revolutionary forces in that 1793, 94 period. Um, It's one of the reasons why the French have so much trouble in Belgium is that um, the locals there are insistent on keeping um, the prominent position and power of of their priests. And so I think after, you know, such a traumatic experience you start to you know the 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 differences of the past and the quarrels of yesterday might pale in comparison and and you're, you're willing to start things afresh so to speak so i suspect that that might have played uh a part as well of members of the catholic church um you know coming to terms with the fact that their internal differences are probably nothing um in comparison to what some secular governments um you know could do and the one thing i would point out because it would be remiss of me not to is that you know the de campaign that you see in 1793 and 94 i mean it's quite controversial and quite multifaceted but it is not something that occurs with the full sponsorship of the national government in paris in many ways um most historians would argue that it's kind of a spontaneous um event that occurs because of particular individuals at more regional levels that are quite anti-clerical or atheist um or fanatic in their belief. Um, and in fact, some of the most famous revolutionaries at this point in time, some that that um have quite divisive reputations, like Robespierre, for example, are actually staunchly against the de Christianization campaign. They view it as a foreign plot to to undermine French unity. And the national government does um Does pass laws in favour of freedom of worship and freedom of religion um, at a time when this is going on. So it's not. um, It's it's quite a multifaceted and complicated topic. um, And I definitely don't want to give the impression that um, you know that campaign was wholeheartedly supported by the government uh, in Paris because that that's not the case at all.
0: It really does seem though that all of these events are really the thing that helped disentwine or unravel religion from the state. And that was the room that allowed Catholicism to become its own thing and really connect back to Rome and not have to worry so much about Gallicanism and being the state church.
1: I suspect as much. I mean, it's just, it's not, Um, it's definitely we're, we're, we're veering out of something that, that is, you know, is my, is my repertoire, but I mean, ultimately, if you look at if such an, a bureaucratic and old institution, such as the church, and 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 you know other old and bureaucratic institutions you Know sometimes you know the house kind of needs to burn down before you can rebuild it in a, in a way that maybe makes more sense. Um, and you know, you look at the various theological, um, and political, you know, just sheer raw political and monetary squabbles that the church could get itself into from time to time. I think it needed something like the revolution and the revolutionary and Napoleonic eras to really shake it to its core and and you know, you know, focus it back on well, what are the key, what are its key priorities? What are the things that it can reasonably do, given the fact that these, um, the rising, the rise of secular and national governments, um, and and focus on, you know, those core things?
0: There were, and internationally, there was a lot going on that strengthened a centralized church, the uh, Catholicism becoming more prominent in England, with both uh, within the the anglo uh, the episcopalians who are the um rather the anglicans who were becoming more catholic and some of them even becoming catholic with irish coming into both the united states and britain uh well england more so uh and Giving more of a Catholic flavor to what was going on in Great Britain at the time, in these traditionally Protestant countries, and then uh, the Catholicism being separated from the state in a lot of other places, like even places that were as rock hard and rock ribbed uh, Catholic as Portugal and Spain, and. The, Austria it gave the church room to grow into its new role. So I think in a lot of ways that uh that the house got burned down or in the you know the modern speak that there was a it was a disruptor event with the French Revolution that allowed these different changes to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's a phoenix from the fire moment so to speak.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good analogy. Now I'm wondering with your podcast you're, you'll get to the French Revolution. I mean, that's something that you could take for the rest of your your life and and more. But your your show is gray history. Are you going to maybe go into some other areas where there's gray in the history, or are you going to maybe carry into uh, France is now done with revolutions by a long shot?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean we're only I'm only just kind of hitting the first republic and and you know the France is on its fifth republic at the moment. No, that for those that aren't familiar with the show, the show's called Gray History, Gray Like the Color. And the the premise of the show is that history isn't black and white. You know, there's ambiguity, there's nuance. Um, And it's in that ambiguity, it's in that grey that history not only has really its intrigue and its beauty, but most importantly, its lesson. And I think that we, particularly in the Western world, could learn a lot, not only from the lessons of the past, but also use history as a medium to kind of see how two or three or four well-meaning people can have different perspectives on complicated issues and not be, you know... um, and not be sinister or, or evil. Um, And so uh, the French revolution was a great starting point because it's, it's an event that no one can agree on really anything about it. Like, you know, why it started, uh, how it developed, how it ended, you know, there's just nothing that anyone agrees with, with the French revolution. So, you know, the purpose of the show is to go through um, the, the revolution in a somewhat um, sequential manner and take the time to compare and contrast differing eyewitness perspectives, different perspectives and conclusions from historians. Uh, and so that's why, you know, the, the episodes, they're, they're generally quite lengthy in nature, and we're moving through the revolution, um, you know, uh, at, at a reasonable pace, but it's certainly not at a quick pace. Um, eventually, to answer your question, I'd like to do other topics. There's a range of, of thorny issues that I would would really love to unpack and spend the time on on you know the gray um whether that's uh, the vietnam war or the american civil war other revolutions um some of the uh say the british british colonial india i think there's a range of topics that um people would find really interesting uh, especially if you take the time to compare and contrast um, what can be quite divisive issues in perspective.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, you, you really get to a great point there in the West, is that there's so much good guys and bad guys, the black hats and the white hats. And it's, it, it's becoming more and more difficult for people to say, well, there's individual actors and they have their own motivations and their motivations aren't always exactly clear. I mean, even in what we're discussing now, Uh, of with the papacy and the French government, there were a lot of people who had a lot of different interests, a lot of different incentives, they all interacted very differently with each other and people that we get the result that we did. And it's I think it's important to look at what instead of oh this is the good guy, and this is the bad guy, why are instead why are these different people acting the way that they are? Well, yeah. And I think it's, you know, you
1: look at some of the political debates that are happening at the moment. And I mean, I mean, a big reason why I'm so passionate about great history and I really want to focus on, on the ambiguities of the past is, 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 you know, to move away from this binary good versus bad attitude that, that we are increasingly seeing as we talk about history and don't get me wrong. there There are certain events and certain individuals in history where it's like, yeah, you just so firmly belong in the bad corner you know, it's not funny. And, and I'm sure you, you know, there's obvious examples that come to mind that fit that, but you look at some of the discussions that are happening around, you know, say um, Winston Churchill's a great example of some of the quite binary discussions that you're increasingly starting to see around um, his past. And it's like, you know, the guy is not, you know, a saint that walks on water by any means, but he's also not the epitome of evil. And, you um, and I think increasingly we're seeing a range of topics and discussions and events, you know, morph into this, this quite binary, you know, good, bad, yes, no. And it really irritates me. And I also just think that, you know, we've got, we've got tremendous challenges, you know, upon us at the moment, Um, you know, the, the increasing division and factionalism that we're seeing in the West is quite worrisome. Um, And, you know, we need, I think we need to do a better job of a learning the lessons from the past, because I mean, there's no point us repeating them if we can just learn them. Um, And two, just doing a better job of listening to someone else, and not listening to reply, but listening to understand. Um, And I really, and I do think that history can be used as a medium to show that well meaning, well intentioned, well educated people can come to a particular problem and have a different perspective and not be, you know, good versus bad, smart versus dumb, you know, these these binary labels that we're increasingly seeing uh today.
0: Even what we're talking about with with this whole time period, you take someone like Pius IX, who under his papacy the uh to give the end in the beginning, uh he, the secular power of the papacy is going to be 100% gone by the end of his his papal reign. But on the opposite side, the religious power of the papacy is going to be supreme. And there's a lot you can say that Pius was really bad guy. And there's a lot to say that he was a, a decent guy. But that's really not the best way to understand him or really, I think, any person. I think you have to try and understand why are they doing things they're not necessarily doing things to just be oh you know a hundred years from now they're going to put me under the good guy. Column in the history book. They they have a ton of different reasons why they do things and why they don't do things, and that's what we should really try to understand. Because if we understand why somebody's doing something, maybe we can uh, have a better understanding of them. And in the modern context, or in our day to day life context, you can come to maybe some more reasonable uh, accommodations with people.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and I mean that's that's really you know the guiding guiding philosophy, I suppose, of of grey history is trying to, to to spend the time to get into the detail of the past and have a look at the complexities, and and I, and I really do believe that history nowadays is too often oversimplified, and people are trying to give you the the one message that that adheres to generally the political argument that they're trying to make at the time, and. Uh, I just do think that everyone could benefit from, 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 you know, spending time to look at our shared collective ancestry. Um, But yeah. And what about yourself? What's, you know, for, for my listeners that that maybe are only just hearing about or just discovering the history of the papacy, you know, what are you focused on at the moment and where are you going next?
0: Well, this episode is going to be in a part of a much, my probably my biggest series that I've ever done to this date on the papacy in the 19th century. And up to this point, I've done almost exclusively really early church history. And if people uh, take uh, an opportunity to listen to my podcast, there's really a lot of foundational papacy in the early, uh, and late antiquity, the early Middle Ages, and then I also do a lot of series where I discuss the historicity and the historical nature of the Bible. And I have a, a several peak uh, collaborators that I work with on that, so you'll get a lot of that. But this series is a real departure because I ended with a series with uh, a person who I mentioned in the episodes, Pope Zachary in the seven fifties, where really his papacy, whether he knew it or not, was going to start a 1200 year long era of the papacy that the, the popes had this secular power inside of the papal states and trying to have religious power over all of Christendom, which will, will change over time. But that really ends in the at the end of the 19th century after the US Civil War, we're really into the modern era. And the, the papacy is really in that 1200 years is really, that's a one section of the papacy is that 1200 years of where they're really trying to struggle being secular power and a religious power. And that's what I really want to explore in this series is what happened with that so i'm branching into more modern history which is definitely not something that i've done a lot with but i'm really fascinated by it now this this real change in a in, in an organization that i mean how many organizations in history are there that have a continuity of nearly 2000 years yeah, not many <laughs> no
1: no, it's, it's, it's a fascinating topic. I think church, like, you know, it's, um, I've, I've spent a little bit of time getting into early church history uh, recently. And, you know, it's just so fascinating. And I like, I, I don't know, I mean, you know, everyone has their own interests, but I I quite like the theological debates that you get as well at various times. And, you know, I mean, I admit that there's, a, there's a point in time where it becomes too theological and it's like, okay, you've lost me. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, when I'm kind of exploring these topics and the light, I just find it fascinating. And then to your point, you know, how the church evolves over time, you know, the split between the Catholic Church and the and what we would consider now the Orthodox Church in more Eastern Europe. Um, then again, you know, I've, i actually we studied in high school the Reformation. And so I've I've always found that particularly interesting as well. And and the the history of the church. You know, there's just you know, particularly because it it insists upon putting itself into such secular discussions, and this thing like the Crusades and like it's just so fascinating, and then you know, if you want to understand the dynamics at play in modern day Europe, if you really want to understand the Cold War, the modern EU, World War II, then you actually need to, you need to come back really to the French Revolution and the early 1800s and the kind of rise of nationalism. And the the role that, you know, the reforms and the role that the church is going through at that point in time are, are fascinating. So I can see why you're enjoying that period of time.
0: I I want to say I had a great time and I definitely hope we can do this again. Maybe we could maybe the listeners out there might uh, suggest a one off where we look at the gray and maybe one event or something.
1: I think I think we can we can lock it in and we'll just have to figure out what the topic is, but this is I think Steve and I are officially requesting idea suggestions, but let's uh let's put it in the calendar. Thank you for listening to this special joint episode with Steve Guerra from the History of the Papacy podcast. You can find the history of the papacy on all good podcast apps, and there's literally more than a hundred episodes for you to sink your teeth into. Steve and I had a blast recording this joint episode and would like to do another in the future. So if you have any questions or ideas that relate to either the history of the papacy or the church in France or during the revolutionary era more broadly, please do send them through. We're very keen to do a second round. As always, Grey History would not be running without the support of the community. Joint episodes like this are only possible because I have the time to work on the podcast, and the people making that possible are the Patreon supporters of the show. If you're enjoying Grey History, I really need your help to keep Grey History running. I've left my job, I've moved out of where I was living, I'm doing everything I can to give you more grey history more often, to give the show a proper shot. But it won't be sustainable without your support. So please, tell people about the show, and please support the show on Patreon. There's now another full-length bonus episode for Patreons of the show, not to mention all the episode extras, behind-the-scenes videos, and other community content if you're enjoying grey history, if you agree that history needs to be told in a way that is not black and white, that emphasises the ambiguity and nuance of the past, then I need your help to keep grey history on the air. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.